Hey everybody, it's Tom Panneries, host of In Country. Before I begin this episode, I want to provide a warning. This episode contains harsh language and mature content, so listener discretion is advised. And now, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, presents Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. And welcome to episode 46 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at Marvel Comics' The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I am taking a break from my regular coverage of The Nom with another one of the classic Vietnam War movies from the 1980s, which is the 1987 Stanley Kubrick film Full Metal Jacket. Just as I did with Platoon, I'm going to talk a little bit about the movie's history and give a synopsis and a review. I'd have to say that if there's a top five list of films that you go to when you think of the Vietnam War, this is definitely on that list. It's also chronologically probably one of, the, at least as far as quote, important movies about the Vietnam War is concerned, one of the last films on the list. Yes, there were some movies and television shows to come out about the war after this film came out. In fact, when it comes to fiction, Tim O'Brien published The Things They Carried in 1990. But when you think about war movies from the 90s and the 2000s, there was a significant shift away from looking at the Vietnam War and toward both the more modern conflicts in the Middle East, as well as another look at World War II. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, per se, as if you look at the 1990s, you both have Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, which are phenomenal films. But the few Vietnam War films that came out after 1990 didn't seem to have the same impact that those made between the late 1970s and of the 1980s did. So, that all being said, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll start my coverage after this. Hey everybody, it's Tom Panneries from In Country and Pop Culture Affidavit, asking you if you would like to donate to Wordplay. This is an annual trivia competition that is taking place in Charlottesville on April 22nd to support the literacy volunteers of Charlottesville Albemarle. Just as I have done for the last two years, 
a team of teachers from my building and I will be participating. Last year, we came in third and won coffee mugs. This year, we're going for first. But the more important thing is that we're trying to raise $500 to support this wonderful organization that helps adults who are illiterate and English language learners learn to read and write and provide them with the support and the skills they need to become further productive citizens in in our town, in our community, in our country. To donate, you can go to popcultureaffidavit.com and click the link included on the first post on the website. You can donate as much or as little as you can, and all donations are tax deductible. Thank you for supporting wordplay and literacy. grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. You will not like me, but the more you hate me, the more you will learn. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. Joker, I want you to get straight up to Fubai. Captain January will need all his people. Yes, sir. Yes, sir! Yes, sir! Anyone who runs is a VC. Anyone who stands still is a well-disciplined VC. about these people? What? We're supposed to be helping them and they shit all over us every chance they get. I'm here to take combat photos. But if the shit gets too thick, I mean, I'll go to the rifle. What do I think about America's involvement in the war? Well, I think we should win. Film Metal Jacket was Stanley Kubrick's second-to-last film, and the second of two films he made during the 1980s, the first one of those being The Shining. This movie is based on Gustav Hausford's semi-autobiographical novel The Short Timers and was released on June 26, 1987. It grossed $46.3 million at the box office in 1987 and was the 23rd highest-grossing movie of 1987, making slightly less money than the re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and more than that year's Best Picture winner, The Last Emperor. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, and R. Lee Ermey was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe for his performance. The film essentially has two parts. 
The first takes place on Paris Island at the boot camp for the United States Marine Corps. And the second takes place while the soldiers shown in the first section are in Vietnam. I'm going to more or less review it in that way, mainly because both parts of the film can be looked at as two separate halves. It's actually one of the overall criticisms I have for the film, but more on that later. As I mentioned, we start on Paris Island in 1967, and while the opening music, which is Hello Vietnam by Johnny Wright, which was the song that opened this podcast, and is played over shots of some fresh new recruits getting their heads shaven, we then cut to a Marine barracks where Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, who is played by R. Lee Ermey, is introducing himself and beginning basic training for the new batch of recruits. He is, well, there's really no way to describe his character, so I'm going to play this for you. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. If you ladies leave my island, if you survive recruit training, you will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death praying for war. But until that day, you are pukes. You are the lowest form of life on earth. You are not even human fucking beings. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. Because I am hard, you will not like me. But the more you hate me, the more you will learn. I am hard, but I am fair. There is no racial bigotry here. I do not look down on niggers, kites, wops, or greasers. Here you are all equally worthless. And my orders are to weed out all non-hackers who do not pack the gear to serve in my beloved car. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir! Bullshit, I can't hear you! Sir, yes, sir! What's your name, scumbag? Sir, Private Brown, sir! Bullshit, from now on you're Private Snowball. Do you like that name? Sir, yes, sir! Well, there's one thing that you won't like, Private Snowball. They don't serve fried chicken and watermelon on a daily basis in my mess hall. Uh, yes, sir! That you, John Wayne? Is this me? Who said that? Who the fuck said that? Who's the slimy little communist shit twinkle toad cocksucker down here who just signed his own death warrant? Nobody, huh? The very fucking godmother said it. I'm fucking standing. I will PT you all until you fucking die. I'll PT you until your assholes are sucking buttermilk. Was it you, you scroungy little fuck, huh? Sir, no, sir. You little piece of shit, you look like a fucking worm. I bet it was you. Sir, no, sir. Sir, I said it, sir. Well, no shit. What have we got here? A fucking comedian, private joker. I admire your honesty. Hell, I like you. You can come over to my house and fuck my sister. <clears throat> you little scumbag. I got your name. I got your ass. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and check down your neck. Sir, yes, sir. Private Joker, why did you join my beloved corps? Sir, to kill, sir. So you're a killer. Sir, yes, sir. Let me see your war face. Sir. You got a war face? Ah! That's a war face. Now let me see your war face. Ah! Bullshit. You didn't convince me. Let me see your real war face. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Sir, yes, sir. 
This is basically Hartman more or less through the entire this entire first half of the movie. There are a few recruits that we meet who are important to the film's overall plot. The first is Private J.T. Davis, whom Hartman calls Joker when he catches him laughing at his tirade, and who's played by Matthew Modine. Joker is more or less the main character of the entire movie, and his time in Vietnam will make up the majority of the film's second half. The second is Cowboy, played by Arliss Howard, who gets the name because he comes from Texas, and while he is a supporting character in this part of the film, he's more of a role in the second half. Third important character is Leonard Lawrence, an overweight dimwit who's played by Vincent D'Onofrio, and whose dimwittedness garners him the nickname Private Pyle, and also gets him bullied by Hartman throughout the, most of that portion of the film. Hartman puts the recruits through every aspect of training while they're at Paris Island. While Joker doesn't seem to have a problem completing many of the tasks required, Pyle is sluggish and doesn't seem to gain any ground at all. In fact, his lack of success and terrible effort results in a further harassment from Hartman. Joker at first tries to help. He obviously feels sorry for Pyle and works with him on being able to climb walls, complete the ropes course, and everything else that gets him in trouble. Hartman, however, doesn't see enough improvement and goes on a collective punishment to the group, handing out consequences to the rest of them while Pyle watches. Trevor! Toe jam! Pop that blister! Jesus H. Christ. Private Pyle, why is your footlocker unlocked? Sir, I don't know, sir. Private Pyle, if there is one thing in this world that I hate, it is an unlocked footlocker. You know that, don't you? Sir, yes, sir. If it wasn't for dickheads like you, there wouldn't be any thievery in this world, would there? Sir, no, sir. Get down! Well, now. Let's just see if there's anything missing. Holy Jesus. What is that? What the fuck is that? What is that, Private Pile? Sir, jelly donut, sir. A jelly donut? Sir, yes, sir. How did it get here? Sir, I took it from the mess hall, sir. Is Chow allowed in the barracks, Private Pile? Sir, no, sir. Are you allowed to eat jelly donuts, Private Pile? Sir, no, sir. And why not, Private Pile? Sir, because I'm too heavy, sir. Because you are a disgusting fat body, Private Pile. Sir, yes, sir. Then why did you hide a jelly donut in your footlocker, Private Pile? Sir, because I was hungry, sir. Because you were hungry. Private Pyle has dishonored himself and dishonored the platoon. I have tried to help him, but I have failed. I have failed because you have not helped me. You people have not given Private Pyle the proper motivation. So, from now on, whenever Private Pyle fucks up, I will not punish him. I will punish all of you. And the way I see it, ladies, you owe me for one jelly donut. Now get on your faces. Open your mouth. They're paying for it. You eat it. Ready? Exercise. One, two, three, four.
this frustrates the rest of the unit and to the point where they haze him one night, beating him up with a bar of soap wrapped in a sock. After this, Pyle snaps too and suddenly turns things around, but even though Herman is slightly impressed, Joker is wary. He and Cowboy have a conversation where Joker thinks that Pyle is Section 8. This never actually gets reported, and the Marines wind up graduating. After the graduation ceremony, they are given their assignments. Everyone else gets infantry while Joker is assigned to Stars and Stripes as a reporter. That night, Joker hears Pyle in the bathroom loading his rifle. Step back away from it. 
What is your major malfunction, numbnuts? Didn't mommy and daddy show you enough attention when you were a child? The end result of this scene is that Hartman is dead and Pyle has committed suicide. The first half of the film ends, and we resume in January of 1968. I think that this part of the film is the part of the film that most people remember. It's definitely the better half. Early Ermy earned the praise he got for the role. The story goes that he wasn't even originally cast in the role, but when he began berating people during the pre-production, Kubrick was so impressed with Ermy, who was a former Joel Sargent himself, that he cast him as Hartman. Hartman's character is definitely a descendant in the spirit of Corporal Himmelstoss, the martinet from All Quiet on the Western Front, whom we saw abuse the German cadets, get a comeuppance in the form of a beating, and then gains his former tormentee's respect after performance on the battlefield. Hartman doesn't get that and doesn't need to. Kubert makes him a villain of sorts, even though there are scenes where he's funny and scenes where you actually understand exactly why he's so tough on Pyle. No, I don't want anyone to sympathize with any bullies or anything like that, but at the same time, Pyle is a frustrating character. You have someone who may not be the most mentally capable person and eventually becomes completely mentally unhinged, but cannot seem to get his act together the entire time that these things are going on. The breakdown that happens, by the way, is scary when it finally happens. D'Onofrio looks frightening when he looks at Modine and recites the line, I am in a world of shit. And Ermi, who at this point has seems to have done nothing but yell through much of the film at the point, and for good reasons when you think about it, because he's well playing the role of a drill instructor, has a great reaction. On his face, you can see that he is legitimately afraid of Pyle, and you can almost hear it in his voice. He's definitely authoritarian in that moment, but the way he lowers the volume and slows his pace shows that he's definitely aware about how real the moment is. Speaking of real, and something that I will will get into as we go through the second half of the film as well, there's a lot of this that feels very staged. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but Kubrick was always deliberate in the way he shot his films, and you could tell that everything is done on purpose. Whereas with Platoon, Oliver Stone was going for more of a... I hate to use the phrase because we've heard this way too much with regard to comics lately, but a gritty realism. Here, in the first half of the film, 
that deals with basic training. Kubrick's perfectionism and deliberate way of making of filmmaking works incredibly well. Ermi does seem to be a yelling caricature of a drill sergeant come to life, but that's pretty much the entire point. And where he's not hard to figure out, his interactions with Pyle give him enough ambiguity when it comes to whether or not he's a, quote, good guy or bad guy. I think it helps though he gets killed at the end of the section of the film. Hartman's death is almost a Frankenstein-type lesson that that which you create will come back to haunt you. The film will begin again in January 1968 and will center around the city of Hawaii during the Tet Offensive, which we've actually already seen quite a bit of during our time at, in, at looking at the NOM. But I'll be back after this with the second half of Full Metal Jacket. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up. <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. Trend is Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com. Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trent is Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com. No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. second half of Full Metal Jacket is literally dirtier than its first half as it takes place in Vietnam. Most of the action will take place in Hue during the Tet Offensive, as I mentioned before the break. But, but we begin with Joker and his Stars and Stripes assignment. While he claims to have seen combat, the guys of the Marine Base openly mock his lack of a thousand-yard stare, which is a term that has often been used to describe the detached sort of gaze of a weary combat-experienced soldier. Okay, we actually begin with what is probably the most famous exchange from the second half of the film, which was famously used by two live crew a couple of years later. You got girlfriend, Vietnam? Not just this minute. Well, baby, me so horny. Me so horny. Me love you a long time. You party? Yeah, we might party. How much? Fifteen dollars? Fifteen dollars for both of us. No, it's you fifteen dollars. Me love 
you long time. Me so horny. Fifteen dollars, two buku. Five dollars each. Me sucky sucky. Me love you too much. Five dollars is all my mom allows me to spend. Okay, ten dollars each. What do we get for ten dollars? Everything you want. Everything? Everything. You keep playing. Well, old buddy. Feel like spending some of your hard-earned money? And you keep thinking that... But the main plot of the second half of the film is where we follow Joker and Private First Class Rafterman on a Stars and Stripes assignment where they are embedded with a squad. The squad, known as the Lust Hog Squad, is headed up by Crazy Earl and Joker's friend from Paris Island, Cowboy. Cowboy, by this point, is a sergeant. They've seen a lot of combat, especially Animal Mother, who's played by Adam Baldwin and is in some way represents the hardcore masculinity that Hartman was obsessed with in the first half of the film. In some way... Animal Mother, in fact, is probably what Private Pyle would have been had things gone differently. More on that later. Anyway, the centerpiece of the action is the Battle of Hue, and during that battle, the platoon leader, Touchdown, is killed by the enemy, although the Marines do wind up securing the area and are interviewed by a news crew talking about their own experiences in the war. Later, while they're on patrol after the battle, the squad winds up getting lost and Crazy Earl is killed by a booby trap, leaving Cowboy in command. As they're trying to get their bearings, Cowboy asks another squad member, 8-Ball, to scout the area. It's then when they where they discover that this, there is a sniper firing at them from a hollowed-out husk of a city that stands before them. 8-Ball is shot, and when he goes out to help him, so is the field medic, Doc J. This sets up a conflict between Cowboy and Animal Mother. Animal Mother wants to go in there and help the two wounded men, but Cowboy's against the idea and orders them to get ready to withdraw. Animal Mother disobeys the order and charges over there. Doc J and 8-Ball are killed, and pretty soon so is Cowboy, which leaves Animal Mother in charge. They determine that there is one sniper firing on them, and eventually move in on the city, trying to flush him out. It's Joker who finds the sniper, who is a teenage girl. He attempts to shoot her, but his rifle jams, and then when she is about to hit him, Rafterman shoots the sniper. Confronted with the wounded sniper, who is saying something in Vietnamese, Animal Mother allows them to kill her as a mercy killing, but insists that Joker does it.
The film ends with the Marines marching toward their camp, singing the theme to the Mickey Mouse Club. and the great homecoming fuck fantasy. I am so happy that I am alive, in one piece, and short. I am in a world of shit, yes, but I am alive, and I am not afraid. The general opinion seems to be that the second half of Full Metal Jacket is weaker than the first. I tend to agree with the caveat, though, that it's almost like this is two separate films with similar characters. They have similar themes about humanity and masculinity and war, but they are presented in such different ways that it's almost a false comparison, despite the fact that it's the same movie. Here, as in the first part, there is that sense of artifice. Kubrick shot the final segment of the film at the abandoned Becton Gas Works in East London, which was dressed to look like the city of Hawaii, but still does feel like a set as opposed to the locations that we saw in Platoon or in other movies, such as, say, Apocalypse Now. But that didn't take me out of the movie, per se. My focus was more on the characters as well as the events. Modine is great throughout the movie, but at the beginning of the section, I think he's especially good as Joker, because Joker has not dropped his smart-ass act yet. Furthermore, he's got a very plush assignment, and you can tell that he knows that, and he is milking it. He's not hardened by combat, even though he's seen some, and that contrasts directly with Cowboy and Animal Mother, who have seen their fair share of carnage up to this point. I pointed out that Adam Baldwin's Animal Mother is very much the evolved version of Private Pile from the first part of the movie. And that's because Kubrick makes him out to be the embodiment of machismo. It's almost Freudian in a sense. Animal Mother is a machine gunner, so he carries the biggest gun and has the biggest presence. He is, in many ways, the alpha male. And Pyle could have been the alpha male had the first part of the film ended differently. Baldwin does a great job at not hiding his disdain for Modine's character, and you can tell that he gets a sense of victory in the end when he insists that if they're going to kill the Vietnamese sniper for mercy... It has to be Joker that does it. Thousand Yard Stare is a huge theme here as well, of course, and that is a universal theme of war fiction that goes all the way back to All Quiet. Paul Bomer has an entire section of one of the chapters where he talks about having been conditioned for the field and how the reason they are so able to let the carnage and other horrors 
they see go out of necessity. In other words, it's a survival tactic. While the thousand-yard stare is a clue into other sorts of psychological stars or trauma brought about by events such as war, it's also survival skill because it's, well, I'm not a psychologist by any means, but it definitely has to be a coping mechanism. I'm not sure if Kubrick and Modine capture this transformation as well as we see Oliver Stone handle it in Platoon or how it's shown in All Quiet or how it's done in other films. Kubrick's obviously heavy-handed, and that considerable lack of subtlety does not always work to his benefit. Adam Baldwin is almost too over-the-top as Animal Mother at times, and, well, it's almost like he's trying to put too fine a point on it at the end. But I still really do enjoy this movie. It's one of uh, that's on my go-to list when it comes to looking at the Vietnam War, and it was one of my obviously on one of my on my go-to list to to take a look at over the course of this podcast. It has a very good examination of the nature of war and the nature of masculinity, um, more the nature of masculinity than war. Kubrick employs in a lot of his films employs mostly male casts. And while you could criticize him for his lack of diversity in many of his films, if you look through Paths of Glory, Dr. Strangelove, 2001, A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, even Eyes Wide Shut, um, which are the ones I've seen, so there, there are a few that I haven't. Spartacus, I, even though I have not seen it, you can include this. There is, um, you can, and this is from an untrained amateur eye, you can see a a examination of, of machismo, masculinity, and male sexuality because of how non-diverse his cast is and because of, of the stories he picks and, and the films he directs. And and this this does have this I think that's the the real value of this film, um, as opposed to say a war film is almost like a um, a psychological piece or a sexual politics piece that you wouldn't expect necessarily going into oh here's another movie about the Vietnam War. Full Metal Jacket, uh, by the way, is readily available on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, it if if Netflix ever decides to get a hold of it and stream it, I'm sure they would. It does show up on television from time to time. And so it's not obscure. It's not hard to get a hold of. And I would recommend it. it it's a pretty lean film as far as Kubrick's concerned. Uh, it doesn't run as lengthy as, say, 2001 or some of his other films. But that's it for me. Um, thank you for taking this break with me and watching another movie, taking a look at another movie from the Vietnam War. I'll be back in two weeks with issue 42 of the NOM. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. I see a red door and I want it painted black. No colors anymore, I want them to turn black. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics, The Nom. 
The NOM and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. InCountry also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.